It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Anyone else out there Christmas people? Because this week... We begin the season of Advent. And Advent comes from a Latin word, adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it's the season of expectation and preparation that looks forward to a dramatic and a miraculous payoff, which is the arrival of God. And think about what we sing O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Notice what we're singing about as we come into this season. We're singing about the appearing of God's Son, the coming of Emmanuel, which means God with us. We're looking ahead to the end of our alienation and our exile, to the conclusion of our mourning. We're looking ahead to a renewed time of joy and thriving in the presence of God. And I know what some of you Grinches are thinking. You're thinking, I still have Thanksgiving leftovers in my fridge, and this dude's singing Christmas carols on the stage, being all festive. It's not even December yet. Chill out. And also, what's the fuss about? We make too much commotion over Christmas anyway. Whatever. Happy birthday, kid. Here's a balloon and a lollipop. Humbug. Do you know how the Old Testament ends? Well, sort of depends on who you ask because Jews and Christians arrange those 39 books differently. But in the Hebrew Bible, and the Tanakh, it ends with the book of Chronicles. And the final note of that book, of that testament, is a hopeful one. It heralds the end of Israel's exile in Babylon. And it celebrates that the people of God are returning to Jerusalem. But you sense there at the end this even deeper anticipation that maybe this is more than just a happy homecoming. God might be doing more. There's more afoot that maybe this is bigger than just a, a rescue from the oppressions of their pagan neighbors. And maybe this is deliverance from humanity's far more profound bondage to evil, sin, and death. There's this expectation that God is going to do something huge and transformative and life-altering. And in the Christian arrangement of the Old Testament, the canon ends with the prophet Malachi. And Malachi leaves us this promise that God himself would appear in his holy temple to refine and to purify his people. 
And we're told that a forerunner would be sent in the spirit and power of Elijah to alert us to when God was about to arrive in our midst. You just see as the, the testament closes, God's people are plunged into a season of expectation and preparation ahead of God's advent. But it ends up lasting for over 400 years. We're going to have 40 days of Advent. They had 400 plus years of this season of Advent. We call them the 400 years of silence. 400 years without a new word from the Lord. 400 years without any additional external reinforcement. Called to wait and prepare, God's people instead grew jaded and forgetful. Bah humbug. But when the New Testament opens in the Gospel of Luke, we meet a faithful priest named Zechariah who is doing his stint of service in the temple. And yes, he's honored to be ministering there in this way. He's honored to be offering the Lord worship in that place on behalf of his people. But you get a sense that he's going through the motions. The stakes feel low. The rhythm's overly familiar. Yes, he's bowing. He's genuflecting. He's lighting the oil lamps. He's burning the incense. He's saying the prayers. He's singing the songs. But the rituals seem empty. The symbols domesticated and powerless until they're not. Until he perceives there in that temple a living presence in the room. And this is what we read in Luke 1, verses 11 through 13. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. It's starting. God's arrival is near at hand. And when that angel appears beside the altar, Zechariah, he should have like let out a celebratory whoop. He should have said, finally, God, yes. But instead, the priest is stunned. He's overcome with fear. He's, he's dumbstruck. Because though he has been faithfully going through the motions, and I don't say that derogatorily, but in practical terms, his hope had grown cold. His confidence and expectation in God had atrophied, had withered into something that was ineffective. But actually, that's not true, right? His prayers were enough. His mustard seed-sized faith proved effective. But Zechariah's sort of vague trust in God's goodness and attentiveness and, and passion to lovingly save us had become sadly insignificant to his everyday. 
And you see, in moments like these, we tend to blame God, not ourselves. He's holding out on us. He's grown distant and silenced. The onus is on, not on us to cultivate our expectation, to, to strengthen our faith, to prepare our hearts for his coming. It's on him to bring the fireworks, to provide fresh wind and fresh fire that will spark our imagination, that will stir up our emotions. What have you got in store this year, God? It better be exciting because there's good stuff streaming. You better capture my attention. But God says, look what I have already provided. God had preserved for his people the timeless stories of his faithfulness. The scriptures that reveal his character and unpack for us our identity as God's beloved children. He's gifted us with the beautiful rhythms and the tangible rituals of worship. He's furnished us with these rich and profound symbols such as the Passover lamb, the the suffering servant, the long-awaited prince of peace that speak to our souls and that help both the left and the right side of our brains grapple with the great drama of God's coming rescue. And he's placed us in a spiritual community where we can encourage one another and wrestle with these things together. And I know this is a long preamble, but hear what I'm trying to say. If you're entering the Christmas season with your hope vague, your peace fleeting, your love fickle, or your joy flagging, seize the opportunity with which Advent presents us. I don't want you cowering in shock, doubt, or fear when God shows up. It's on you to prepare your heart. It's on you to cultivate your expectation, to rekindle your passion and return to the love you had at first. Let us learn to marvel once again. It's not bad to fall into the rhythms of this holiday, but may we go through the motions faithfully. May we see with eyes of real faith and navigate these moments with hearts that are open to God in love. Our charge this Advent is to re-infuse the familiar with meaning and to therefore experience God's grace afresh. So to this end, on each Sunday... This Advent season, we're going to unpack together one familiar symbol of Christmas and hopefully discover anew what it might have to teach us about God's heart and God's coming. And so the first symbol we're going to unpack this week is the symbol of a light in the darkness. Josh, can you turn the house lights off for a second? Realize how integral lights in the darkness are to our celebration of Christmas. You can turn them back on now, Josh. I don't want people to get scared. (laughs) But imagine your Christmas festivities without a Yule log burning in the fire, 
without twinkling lights on your Christmas tree, without bright and colorful strings of Christmas lights uh, illuminating our homes and our neighborhoods at night. Even today, we began our Christmas worship by lighting an Advent candle together. And you might know how we will end our Christmas worship on Christmas Eve, which is singing Silent Night Together by Candlelight. You may even realize that the very date we choose to celebrate Jesus' birthday is influenced by the church's desire to kind of foreground this symbolism. It's no accident that we mark and commemorate Christ's arrival in the dead of winter. We intentionally mark his birth at the time of the winter solstice. This is because when the world is at its darkest, we stand up and we tell a different story. We proclaim and we point to a light shining in the dark that will fill the cosmos with light and warmth and life. And know that this is more than just human tradition. This is not just how we celebrate Christmas. The scriptures foreground the same imagery in each of the Christmas narratives. The Gospel of Matthew has the Bethlehem star that features prominently. We read in Matthew 2, 1 through 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. We don't know the exact nature of this guiding star. It's somewhat unclear. Scholars debate what kind of astronomical event convinced the Magi to embark on a search for an infant Jewish king. Was it a comet, a supernova, a meteor, some particular conjunction of, of planets that lit up the night sky with some sort of spectacular display? The theories sort of abound, and they're endlessly fascinating, but all we can say for sure is that Jesus' birth was heralded by a peculiar light shining in the darkness. In Luke's gospel, it's the priest Zechariah, who we've already met, that actually introduces us to this imagery. When his son John is born, he realizes the full import of the moment. The angel had revealed to him that his son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. His John, who we will know as John the Baptist, would be that Elijah-like figure that the prophet Malachi promised would precede the arrival of God. And what would God's arrival be like? This is what Zechariah sings in Luke 1, 68 through 69, and then a little later in 76 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. God's arrival, his incarnation in human flesh, his birth in Bethlehem would be like the long-hoped-for sunrise after a cold and dismal night. Have you ever gone camping and your tent leaked and it was bitter cold and you yearned for the return of the sun? Jesus' advent would bring hope to those burdened by despair. Illumination to those who lost their way in the dark and, and the reinvigoration of life to those who had become frozen by the onset of death. The Apostle John heralds Christ's arrival with these words. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. And I love how he phrases it at the beginning of his gospel. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming in to the world. Okay, a light in the dark. What's the, the there there? What's the greater significance of this imagery? What is this symbol supposed to tell us? Well, to answer that, we actually have to go all the way back to the very beginning in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, literally in the very head of things, God created the sky above and the land below. God created from nothing the, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. Spiritual matter, whatever that means, and physical matter. And we're not told how God made the literal stuff of the cosmos, but it is clear that he and he alone did it. Yet bringing the stuff of the cosmos into existence is not all that scripture means by create. It needed to be made functional. It needed to be put into order to be imbued with purpose and structure and beauty and meaning. So we read the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see the stuff of creation in a state of chaos and disorder. You could translate that line and the land was wild and waste. The Hebrew I love is tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. It was unordered and uninhabited. It was not yet orchestrated and prepared in such a way that life might flourish. The tohu wabohu, the chaos and disorder of that pre-creation state, it's depicted in two ways. It's depicted as darkness and as this churning, watery abyss. 
But above those black and tumultuous waves, we see the Spirit of God fluttering. God's breath, his spirit, his invisible presence is there, buzzing with anticipation. The Hebrew word is the same word of like the fluttering of a butterfly's wings. It's, he's ready to bring order and goodness and peace. And we read in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God's word is spoken into the darkness. Let there be light. But this is not the light of the sun or the light of a star. It's God's own glorious light that fills and organizes and contains the darkness. So when we say that Jesus is the light in the dark, We're declaring that the Christmas story is a new creation story. It's not just about the birth of a good king for one particular nation in one particular time and place. It's not a tale about a political leader who will come and make things marginally better for us. It's not the story even of a rescuer who will snatch us from the darkness and take us to his realm of spiritual light. It's the story of the creator God arriving in our human flesh and the fullness of our earthly matter because we have made tohu wabohu once again of his good creation. Our sin and our rebellions, our pollution and injustice, we've made a mess of things. And he's here to recreate the world. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah's language as he surveys the landscape in his day. He says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Tohu wabohu. And to the heavens and they had no light. I looked to the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is the judgment of the Lord that rests upon us. He has given us over to our wicked desires and he's allowed us to suffer the consequences of our actions. And the result is desolation. It's the vandalism and the unmaking of his good, beautiful world. But God doesn't leave us in this place of chaos and disorder. There is good news for a groaning creation that eagerly longs for redemption and restoration. God once again speaks into the darkness to recreate our world. Once again, his glorious light fills the cosmos to bring goodness and justice and beauty and peace. You should be hearing Genesis at the beginning of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Christmas story is a new creation story. And yes, the first thing to be born is a little baby. God with us, the light in the darkness. But ultimately, what will be brought about is a new heavens and a new earth. This is Revelation 21, my favorite passage. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is no accident that in the darkest stretch of our calendar, we worship by lighting lights in the darkness. It's no accident that Christians for generations have thrown a Yule log in the fire and sat in front of its light and warmth late into Christmas Eve. It's no accident that we put lights in our trees and lights on our houses. The world is a dark place. We feel the chaos and disorder. We have a sense that it was once made good, but now it has been disrupted. And so often we start to despair. But God doesn't leave us lost in the dark. The Christmas story is a new creation story. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has gone. The new is here. In him is light, warmth, and life. A new beginning for the universe and for each and every one of us. Christ makes available for us a full remaking, mind, body, and soul, and the restoration of a relationship of love and an intimacy with the God who created us. So as we prepare our hearts for God's coming this Advent, as we cultivate our expectation And as we rekindle our passion, let us re-infuse with meaning this beloved Christmas symbol of a light in the dark. Filled with hope and joy, let us light up the darkness this holiday season, knowing that the true light, our Lord Jesus Christ, has come to make all things new even us. And this is something worth celebrating and cherishing this Christmas season. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, but as they do, let us pray. 
God, there is something that hits us. There's something visceral. There's something emotional. There's something that's not even maybe intellectual, God, but we take great comfort from seeing a light in the dark. And while it feels so mundane, even that points to you. You do not leave us lost in the dark. (laughs) You do not leave us frozen in the night. Because of your love and grace, you have come You've laid down so much to rescue us, to be for us that light in the dark. But what you bring is even more. It is new creation. It is remaking. It is hope and joy and love, and justice, and peace. So have your way in our lives today. Have your way in our church. Have your way in our community. Remake us and give us hope. And let us be little lights in the dark for those who have lost hope because you have come. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.